Hi, Seth MacFarlane here, letting you know that Once Upon a Time will not be seen on ABC on Sunday, February 24th. In order to make way for a little variety show I like to call the 85th Annual Academy Awards. Hope to see you then. The creators and executive producers of Once, Adam Horowitz and Eddie Kitsis, are here to guide you through a recap of In the Name of the Brother. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. This is the official ABC Once Upon a Time podcast, and I'm your host, Estelle Magecki. This week, it was really great to explore the Dr. Frankenstein backstory. And, of course, there was plenty happening in Storybrooke as well. As Emma so well put it, looks like the world just came to Storybrooke. Yes. So what were your major themes for this episode? Well, you know, I think that a lot has changed since our characters have returned to Storybrooke and things are sort of piling on in hopefully in an exciting way. You know, we wanted to look at what these new dilemmas are through the prism of Dr. Whale and seeing what he's going through and seeing how this crisis of a stranger whose life is in danger triggers something in his past and a deep-seated emotional problem he's had that has been buried beneath him for, for many, many years that he is now forced to face. Yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways it's redemption for him or at least he's looking for it. You know, we know that in episode five when we introduced him actually as Dr. Frankenstein, he said, I need to get back to my brother. And we always wanted to tell that story. And, you know, for us, it's about a guy who could never win his father's approval. And unfortunately, the casualty of that was his brother. And so that brother was a constant reminder to him of his failure. And that was something that he has been desperately trying his whole life to rectify. And what Ruby was trying to say is, here's your second chance. And of course, it was in monotone, which was a great contrast to everything in color. And I loved Rumpelstiltskin being in color. Yes, well, Rumpel comes from a land with color to a land without color. And I think people that are listening right now should understand this is the very first black and white podcast. <laughs> It is. No colour whatsoever. So starting with Dr. Well, Victor, aka Frankenstein's storyline, why does his dad have such a bias towards the younger son? I think what it is is that the other brother has become like his father. In a lot of ways, the father was a military man. His son that he loves and favours is a military man. And he thinks what Victor is doing is witchcraft. And Victor realizes that his father never got over the loss of his wife and became focused on, if I could bring that back for him, he would love me. And I think there's something really sad about it, you know? I think a lot of our characters have tortured pasts, and I think he has a, a, a lot. And what was really important to us is for the brothers to be very close. That even though the favored brother was favored, he felt guilty about it. And you saw that with the watch. And you saw that with the way that Victor behaved and the way that the brother came to kind of bail him out of the graveyard scene and stop him from going too far. And just going back to Storybrooke, why does Rumpel refuse to cure Greg? Well, I think that Rumpel refuses to cure Greg because of exactly what he says, which is, first of all, he's very upset because of what's happened to Belle. He's very upset because he's been talked out of killing Captain Hook. <laughs> so he has just tried to do true love's kiss with Belle, and that failed. And he is in a dark place. And as far as he's concerned, he doesn't care if this guy lives or not. It's more beneficial to him if he dies. He doesn't want the world coming to Storybrooke. And he kind of argues that with the group. 
I mean, I'm kind of surprised that Grumpy goes in and he's like, well, you know, if everyone comes in, then it's more trouble for us. Well, he's Grumpy. He's mercenary. You know, he's, he's, he is, uh, you know, he may be a minor and at one point he was dreamy, but he was also the one who alerted us to the curse and he is a soldier in, uh, for Snow White. And I think he's willing to go prison rolls when he needs to. One for the many. Mm-hmm. I love the Star Wars theme on Greg's cell phone. Yeah, I mean, that was a way, you know, for us to really signify he's from the real world. He's from the present, and this is a guy who is different than anything that we've experienced in Storybrooke yet. And just going back to Dr. Whale in the hospital, he really has a breakdown in that moment when he sees the broken watch because that's a direct parallel to mm-hmm. the stopwatch. Yeah. Well, I think in that moment he was brought back to all the pain that he felt in his experience with his family and particularly his father and all the self-doubt that was instilled in him by his father who never believed in his work and never supported his work. And seeing that broken watch brought him back to that Christmas all those years ago where it really reached ahead. I think the watch not only symbolizes the fact that his father didn't love him as much as his brother, but I think the watch also symbolized the fact that he couldn't save his brother, how can he save this man? And when people are like, he might have someone calling him, he might have someone at home, I think quite honestly, he didn't want the responsibility of trying to save a man's life because he didn't want someone, he didn't want to be responsible for another death. And I think that that and his insecurities kind of overwhelmed him in that moment. And he wants to drown himself. Like he throws the watch into the water and then almost jumps, but Red saves him. Yes. They do have some similarities, except Red as the wolf wasn't quite aware of her actions. Whereas I feel Victor, he was really passive when Gearheart was killing his father. That is true. And I think that he was passive. I think that was in a way Gerhardt exercising the frustration he felt and then he realized he went too far. But I think that what's interesting is Ruby was not in control of her actions, but the end result is she had to remember she did them and she still killed people she loved. And he killed someone he loved, which was his brother and his father. You know, they went about it in different ways, but really what he's saying to her there in that moment is how do you live with yourself? How do you go on? Because Ruby, we see her and we see she's controlled the wolf. We see that she's moved on and we see there's good in her heart, but she does every day have to live with some really dark demons. She was a good counselor in that session. Yeah. Going back to the exchange between Emma and Hook in the hospital, Emma says, you hurt Belle, and Hook's reply was brilliant. I hurt his heart, referring to Rumpel. Bell was just where he keeps it. Yeah. Such a wonderful scene and such a strong scene to me. You know, Jane Espenson, who wrote this script, did a fantastic job. And I think what I love about that is he understands, after a lifetime of searching for vengeance, what hurts Rumpel the most. And he realizes that, you know, the very first thing he wanted was his son, but his son isn't around. And, you know, at this point, Bell is where he sees his weaknesses, and that's what he got out of Archie. And he knew that before because he tried to kill her once and the fact that she's in Storybrooke and he's still at it and they're together, well, that's where he keeps his heart because everything else for Rumpel uh, or Mr. Gold you see is just seems to be manipulation and self-interest. But that's the one time in addition to his son where you see how genuine he is. And I think it's great when Emma says, if I were to pick dead guy of the year, I'd pick you. 
There was a really great scene that got cut because of time, but it was in the middle of all this chaos. Captain Hook comes out and he goes, what the hell is this? And it was Jello because he had never seen it before. And it was just him experiencing hospital Jello. But alas, it did not make the cut. Hopefully for the DVD. Yes. Belle screaming after discovering Rumpel kissing her is a pretty good indication that she's completely lost her memory. Yeah. Yes. But it was heartbreaking to see the expression on Rumpel's face when she smashed the cup. Did he really find a way to charm a talisman to bring back memories? He was trying anything and everything. He was desperate and it didn't work. And he's got a real problem now because the woman he loves is now in a dire situation and all his powers seem to be ineffectual. So the big question is what's he going to do? And because he's Rumpelstiltskin, it's not gonna be nothing. And when he appears in Victor's lab, the deal that he makes with Victor, Dr. Frankenstein, we learn how this connects to episode 205. Yes. I almost wanna watch those two episodes back to back. What happens is you realized is that Rumpelstiltskin is a man who likes to collect powerful objects. And we know he said, magic can't bring anyone back from the dead. But you know, word trickles through. There are many portal hoppers out there, Jefferson being the most famous in our world. And he heard there's a man out there who says he's got something more powerful than magic and it's science and it can bring someone back from the dead. And a man who collects objects and power is going to want that. You know, the thing we love about Rumpel is how manipulative he is. He needed to create a monster, which was Regina. He needed to make her realize you can't bring someone back from the dead, so she would be on her dark path toward creating the curse that would bring him to bay. And at the same time, he's still a man of self-interest and he wanted to see if this guy could do it, which unfortunately he could not. And what's interesting about that scene is that Rumpel says, you teach me to wield whatever it is you wield. That's the deal. I always thought that Rumpel's deal was with the doctor to pretend to revive Daniel in exchange for a heart. But was it both? Yes, I guess if you were being technical about it, it would be two deals. But one is the execution of the original deal, which is if you can do what you say, teach me and I will find it. And then, you know, the heart was what he realized it was the missing ingredient. It almost was a two-step deal, if I remember. Yes, yeah, it's the one deal led to the other, Yeah, which is that, you know, Rumpo has come to this land and is fascinated by what it can or can't be. And then when the limitations of the land present itself, this presents the opportunity for the second deal, which is, well, in my world, there's something that can help you, but you're going to have to do something for me to get that heart. So later when Cora appears in Mr. Gold's shop, she says, the crocodile snaps at the little bird, which is a great line. And she always plays herself off as so innocent, almost mm -hmm. victim-like. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about Cora's world versus everyone else's reality? Well, I think Cora's world is her own world and she has a very specific view on her place in it and on her relationship to everyone in it, including Rumpel. And I think in that scene, we are trying to give you a taste of a history between these two characters, a history that we fully intend to delve into shortly. For me, when she says, let's seal it like we used to, she's certainly hinting at a past. We've certainly hinted at that past before, and we are going to show it to you in a few short weeks. You know, there is a past between them, and what I thought was interesting in that scene was Cora actually kind of was deferential to Rumpel. You know, we've set up this big showdown, but what we like is she got what she wanted by manipulating him to his ego. And now whether it worked because he still has some feelings for her on a story that we haven't seen yet, or did it work because he just wanted to find his son, or was it all of those things remain to be seen. But what I love about Cora is her adaptability and the way she can manipulate any situation to her advantage, even one with Rumpel. I don't 
know whether he was quite expecting her to seal it with a kiss. I certainly wasn't. I was kind of surprised and taken aback by learning about that path. Yeah. Then later, when Cora snoops around Regina's house and then disguises herself as Henry, I was really hoping it was Henry for yeah. Regina's sake. Well, it's the manipulation of Cora. Once again, she's doing what she can to get through the front door because she knows once she's let into your house, she'll get what she wants. And so that is a situation where with Rumpel, she left a gift and she was unthreatening. And in this one, she realized Regina would freak out and know everything that she did if she just saw it was Cora and wouldn't let her in. You know, a good villain takes what you care about emotionally and then exploits it. And it's not even in some ways villainous. It's like, in this case, there's also a level of parallel here, which is like she knows Regina's reaction to Henry and it's very similar to Cora's own reaction to Regina. It's like generations that are sort of repeating this pattern and we're, we're seeing how the parent-child relationship is so strong. I think that's a good point because when we were coming up with the story, we talked about what Cora wants from Regina is what Regina wants from Henry. So Cora is smart enough to use that against her, which is why is it okay for Henry to forgive you? Why can't you forgive me? Now, you know, the difference being is that Regina didn't kill Henry's fiance. And the scene between them in the crypt, when Cora apologizes, I had to remind myself as I watched that scene that this was the same woman who framed her own daughter. And it's quite a contrast mm -hmm. because Regina actually says, you wanted me broken. And Cora corrects her and says, receptive. Well, what I love is that they're two smart women and what Cora's point she was saying, and I think she makes the point effectively, which is you don't want to be friends with these people. They're never going to forgive you. Is that really what you want, to potluck dinner at Granny's? You want your son. And the minute things got bad, they turned against you. I'm always there for you. And even though you tried to kill me, and even though we've had this horrible past, I'm your mother and I love you and I'm here for you now. And so she's kind of using what probably deep down Regina always wanted from her mother because I feel like Regina always felt like she was never good enough for her mom. But she does correct her in that moment when she says, you framed me so well that anyone would have mm -hmm. thought that I had done it. Right. And it was in the car when she used the object from her house, the little handprint. Mm -hmm. That's plan B. One of my favorite scenes in this whole episode is just Cora looking through her daughter's stuff, looking at these strange pantsuits, looking at the way her daughter decorated the living room, and then seeing Henry. And so what was interesting was plan A was, look, look how quickly they turned on you, and Regina's like, not good enough. And so she used Henry against her. And you just saw that breakdown in the car, like yeah. that one moment when Regina realizes, well, yeah, as long as Emma's in the scene, then I don't have a chance. Well, I think, yeah, and I think that it's also a sense of Regina has been alone for so long now. For 28 years, she's been here with no real ally. Before that, when she was the queen, she had no real ally. She only had people manipulating her. And in this moment, curse is broken. She's just been framed. She really didn't have fun at that dinner. I think she needs her mom. And I think her mom's saying, I'm sorry. I'm saying all the things you dreamt I would say. And that is a hard thing for anyone to resist. And when she makes the point about Henry, it's kind of like Regina. You know, it's what Regina said in episode nine, which is your grip on my heart is too strong. And we see it in this scene. Do you think Cora is sincere in her apology? I think Cora is sincere in her apology in the fact that when she saw that her daughter loved her, she realized, like, this is what I want. She's always wanted a relationship with Regina. Like Regina with Henry, she pushes too hard. But I genuinely believe that Cora wants to be with 
her daughter and get her daughter's love, but I think that Cora is, has her own void. Is she a perfect mother? No, but she's trying. Yeah, she's trying. So what's your favorite scene or moment from this episode? It's funny, there's so much that I enjoy about it and I'm proud of, but I do love the ending and I love kicking off a little bit of the Greg Mandel thread in the show, which is something that we're going to start to explore in the upcoming episodes about what it means when this regular guy from out of town comes in and he's seen something. For me, it was the scene where Mr. Gold tries true love's kiss on Belle. And I just love the way that he's seen it before. He's seen it with Charming. He's wondering if it could work for him. And you just see all the self-doubt, the fact that he thinks he's a man that can't be loved. And when he does it and she opens up, there's that minute of hope on his face. And then it goes away. And for me, that scene was just heartbreaking. So we have a few Twitter questions. Steve Perdick asks, does the special glowy orb that Rumpel uses to find Bay have a name? It's the special orb that he uses to find Bay. I don't know. We don't have a name for it. (laughs) Sarah Mikowski asks, how did Snow obtain the fairy dust that she used to defeat the trolls in season one, episode three? Well, that is a story that has not been told, but if I remember, she did not use fairy dust from a good fairy. She hinted at a fairy dust from a dark fairy. So somewhere out there is an evil fairy that we haven't got to yet. Let's not forget that at that point in her life, Snow was living as a bandit in the woods. So what she came across and what she did, those are things that we haven't completely explored. And, you know, encountering a dark fairy is certainly something that may have happened to her and something that may have given her something a little bit more, uh, with a little more kick. And Joanna asks, has Sneezy recovered his memory yet? He has not. He has not, but we have not forgotten our beloved Sneezy and there's more to come with him. Yeah, the dwarves are one man down now and I don't think they will let that stand and I think that there's been a lot of other things, but um, we have not forgotten about that and he is out there and he is still needing to be saved. Eddie and Adam, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thanks everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening and tuning in. If you'd like to be a part of our next session, please add your question to the podcast post on the Once Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash onceabc. Please join Eddie and Adam next week and tune in to Once Upon a Time, Sundays, 8, 7 central on ABC and available the following day at abc.com.